So as we started last week, we're kind of going through this section of Christ that we would think, why are you covering this over Christmas? This is kind of dark, Pastor. We, we want to talk about the, the birth of this baby, not the death of this man. Well, sorry, that's what we're going to talk about. And as we go through this Advent season, uh, we are reminded by the not only birth of our king, but of his death of a sacrifice we're reminded even in the beginning of the narrative of his entire life and so if you have a copy of god's word turn to chapter 27 but as you're turning there i want to read to you these first sections like we did last week just to keep them fresh in your mind matthew 1 21 through 23 she will bear a son and you shall call his name jesus for he will save his people from their sins so even here at the announcement of this child we see that this child was born to die and so You shall call him Jesus, for you will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then going a little farther in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came from Jerusalem, came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So they recognized this. They recognized this because of their wisdom, because they were in their own country seeking after God, and by God's glorious grace, he revealed this truth to them, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And then going a little farther yet, Matthew two eleven, and going into the house, they saw this child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so you see in these gifts a representation of the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. And so we talked last week about how gold represents his kingliness. We see this even in Solomon, right? People would come from afar to bring these great gifts to these kings who deserve it and who more than Jesus. Well, I'm going to skip over frankincense because we're going to talk about that probably next week. And today I want to talk about myrrh. I want to talk about the tomb. I want to talk about his death. So if you have a copy of God's word, hopefully you got to Matthew 27. I want to look with you starting in verse 57 and throughout that. Uh, For your own study later on, if you want to, you can write in your Bible or if you're a note taker, you can write Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19. All of those of the Gospels have a corresponding part to this of what we're going to talk about this morning. So without any further ado, let us join together in prayer, shall we? Please pray. God, our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for this time you've allowed us to get together. God, we lift up all those that we know around the globe that are hurting and suffering even right now, especially when we think about this tomb and we think about death. Death is all too real, and we were reminded of that just recently as those tornadoes tore through Kentucky. As we ask that you would be with those families, I thank you that Kentucky is right in America's Bible belt, and so I know there's a lot of churches, I know there's a lot of people who claim to profess Christ down there, and so we just ask that during this time of suffering and sorrow for those, that it would also be a time where they reconnect if they've fallen away, reconnect with you, reconnect with the local body of believers, reconnect with their loved ones. God, we pray for Uh, People in this church we know are hurting and suffering who are coming into this holiday season and may have grief that they're dealing with from loss of a loved one. And we pray for those, our brothers and sisters around the globe, who are hurting and suffering not because of uh, illness or loss, but rather because of persecution. 
as we think of those who are in the Middle East or in Africa or in Asiatic countries that are being suppressed, abused, and in many cases, they themselves will be entering into tombs all in the near future because of you. And so, God, we thank you and praise you for your grace and mercy upon us that we can gather together in a temperature-controlled room with electricity that's running and enjoy fellowship with one another and being fed by your word. So God, we pray that that is exactly what would happen. Prepare our hearts and our minds for your word this morning. May it be a blessing to us. May it feed our souls and minister to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, I want to tell you ahead of time, on the slides that you are going to see, whatever is in orange is going to be taken from these other gospels that I just told you about, okay? So we're going to go through in the section of Matthew. I'm going to read through the text with you, and then whatever is in orange, I didn't add it. It's from one of the other gospels, okay? So just keep that in mind as we, as we read through the text. Verse 57. When it was evening, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, uh, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He was... Can you click so I can just read? Sorry. Um, He was a respected member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. And so I just want to pause there for a moment and just have you understand some of the characters in this narrative. Of course, we have Jesus, but then we also have this man, Joseph, who is a member of the council but who did not agree with their desire to put him to death, okay? So verse 58, he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, because of course he knew that he would suffer the same fate. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Joseph took the body, he took it down, Uh, he wrapped it in clean linen shroud. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes with the spices, as is the burial custom for the Jews. And they laid it, they laid Sorry, and they laid his body in his own tomb, in Joseph's tomb, which he had cut out of the rock, where no one had ever yet been laid. He rolled against uh, uh, he rolled a great stone on the entrance of the tomb and went away. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid. Jesus there. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointments on the Sabbath. They rested according to the commandment. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, We remember how this imposter said that while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. So therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, 
lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and then this last fraud will be even worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go. Make it as secure as you can. Now, I'm going to pause here for just a minute. This isn't part of what I want to talk about this morning. This is just for you, for background. In the context there, people debate over whether this is the actual guard of the temple or where this is Pilate's guard. In the Greek, it could be either. So many scholars say it's probably both. And we'll see that if you keep reading forward into uh, Matthew 28 when we get there. They talk about these soldiers and how they, if, they, if it gets back to Pilate, that they're going to take care of the story for them on their behalf. So Pilate said, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made a tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. And that's the text I want to cover with you this morning. The first thing I want to point your attention to is really Golgotha. Now, why Golgotha, you might be asking this? Well, I think it's an apologetic to the true death of Christ. Now, in Golgotha, it means the place of the skull, right? And so we have to think through logically, because that's where our brains reside, through this death and what this means. And so Golgotha, I want you to understand the actual true death of Christ is absolutely, without a doubt, paramount to our faith as Christians. And so not only should you absolutely accept it, but you should also never, ever neglect it. Our apostles didn't when they made the creed, right? For he was died, buried, and then resurrected. And so it matters that he was, has died. It also matters that he was buried. And so that's why we're talking about the tomb today. But all of this starts on Golgotha. The first reason this is important for an apologetic is, is firstly this. He must have truly been human to die. Now think about that. There are false teachings out there. There are some that say, hey, he was, he, wasn't, he was just in the appearance of man, but he was really fully God. He wasn't really man. Well, that's a heresy. The reason that's a heresy is because if he wasn't fully human, then he could not relate to us. And so as you think about this, he had to be fully human to die. If he wasn't fully home, human, and in the moment that they thrust the spear into his side, the way I picture it, like some kind of science fiction novel, as it opens up the window to his flesh, all of a sudden the light and the power of God begins streaming out. Clearly that's not what happened in the text. Or perhaps, if you don't like that Lord of the Rings style thing, perhaps you're a Star Trek person. And perhaps you can relate to the whole ideology of maybe a holographic image. You know, he was just kind of a divine hologram projected forth from the glory of God in his power in the image of man, but not truly fully human. No, my friend is, he has to be fully human, as human as you and I, to suffer death truly. You see, if he wasn't fully human, then the curse that was given to Adam and Eve could not be fully fulfilled, and it must be in Christ. So, he doesn't necessarily need to be human to die. All things die. However, like I said before, his humanity is completed in the death. Because did Scripture not say that death was brought forth in Adam and through him all mankind then shall die? And so, if Jesus does not die, he does not complete the fullness of what it means to be truly human. See, again, I'm sorry to be morbid, but the, we all run the race. 
All of us. Some of us run a little faster, some of us run a little slower, but all of us run the race and in the end are met in the cold embrace of death. Every single one of us. We run this race from cradle to grave and we see that entire race of Christ laid out before us most clearly even in the beginning of Matthew to the end. This man was fully human. The next thing is is that this Golgotha represents his his real death is is that we have hope of a real resurrection. You see, if Jesus didn't really die, then he wasn't really raised from the dead. There's other theories out there. Other theories that they have are that he swooned. Perhaps you've heard this. That he didn't really pass away. But think of the illogicalness of this given the text. Think of what I just read to you. Do you think, truly do you think, that a Roman centurion would not know the face of death when he saw it? Especially a Roman centurion that was stationed to be at the cross and watch those to be crucified on probably a regular basis? My guess would be, like any kind of good military operation, there were probably shifts of soldiers. And each of these soldiers would have a certain platoon, a certain segment that they would be assigned to. And so each of these centurions would be on duty for a specific period of time around the clock to guard, remember we talked about last week, to guard these criminals so that somebody wouldn't come and pull their body down off the cross since it was an open public location. And so these people had to sit there and watch. And they would do things like playing dice and other things to pass the time. But read the text. Go back to the text with me. As it says, Pilate was surprised that Jesus had actually passed away. And so what does he do? He calls the centurion. And even in other scriptures of the text, we see that on the cross, his side was pierced to make sure that he was expired. And so Golgotha reminds us of the apologetic of he must be fully human and he must have truly died. Because if he didn't truly die, then he couldn't be truly raised. And isn't that not, in and of itself, the gift that we have of the tomb? And so that brings me to the second part of this. What was given? You know, it's said that uh, this gospel is a fragrance of death to the dying, but a fragrance of sweet perfume to those who would be living. And I see this in the text all the clearer here. I hear this in my own voice, in my own mind, as I pen scripture, not scripture, as I pen my sermon based on scripture, and I think to myself, I don't, I don't want to hear about death during Christmas. I want to celebrate life. I want to have the joy of opening gifts, not the grief of burying bodies. But this is fulfilled here in this text. Jesus here gives the ultimate gift, does he not, of himself. Again, look with me at Scripture before where we're at today. As he says, with a loud voice, he yielded up his spirit. Nobody takes his life from him. Doesn't Scripture tell us that there is no greater gift than somebody laid down his life for those, his friends, or those who he loved? Doesn't Jesus tell us himself that nobody takes his life, he lays it down? And is this not what he has done for you? Was it not your very face that he saw as he closed his eyes 
and said things like, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And as he yielded up his spirit to the Father who is in heaven, was he not trusting that what he was doing was going to be the righteous payment for you? See, as you think of Christmas, as you unwrap your packages, picture to yourself this tomb. Is it the wrapping paper that makes the gift special? No. It's what's inside. I know this because my wife doesn't comment on my poor wrapping jobs. And so it's not the wrapping paper, it's what's inside that matters. And so as you think of Christmas, as you unwrap your gift, think of the very earth itself. This vessel, oh how sweet the sign of Jonah. The sign of the Son of Man who would be in the earth for three whole days. How sweet it is, this gift of death. This gift of Christ is the reason for this season. This gift Jesus gave. There's other gifts in this text, though. Think of Joseph and Nicodemus. Joseph, this man who is in secret, now comes out and he, he gives Jesus the gift of a proper, a proper burial, one that would honor this man. You see, here's what would normally happen. If you were crucified, normally what the Romans would do is they would just leave you on the, on the crucifix until your body either rots to the place where it falls off, or if you were a wealthy person, you had slaves or servants, or if you were a Jew, the, the people would then put you in a general burial plot. Now, normally when a Jewish man or woman died, they would go to something like we have our current Western cemeteries, right? But instead, there would usually be something like this where there would be a family tomb, a family plot, and all of them would be buried together there in this cutout or in the ground in this set grave. And if you were a criminal, instead you would be buried outside of the city at an unmarked grave where nobody cared to visit. And so the first gift that we see is this man, Joseph who, as it says here, has his own tomb cut out of the rock, who he paid for with his own pocket. And more than that, he pays for more than that, doesn't he? Because it says that he was in secret. And I want you to think about the gift that he has given here. Who was accountable when his body was not found there? Joseph. Who went to Pilate and asked for the body? Joseph. Who is now known by the council of whose tomb it was in? Joseph. Whose entire social structure he decided was worth less than giving honor to his Savior? Joseph. And so as we think about what was given here, rest assured that Joseph gave a lot. But it pales in comparison to what Jesus gave him. Even Nicodemus, 75 pounds of myrrh. I have no frame of reference for how much that must have cost. But both of these men were now giving their lives. They were now ostracized by the communities that they found their identity in. Nicodemus, this scribe. Joseph, this council member. None of them would welcome him back. They viewed him as a traitor, both of them. They viewed them as one who would follow this crackpot Christ. This would cost Joseph and Nicodemus very, very much. And yet, this is the gift of the tomb to you. That by his stripes we are healed. 
by the debt that he paid, we are forgiven. I hope that that gives you a different picture of the tomb. Many of us fear death. The reason we fear death, I believe, is because we neglect to see the tomb as a gift. You see, back when Adam sinned and the curse was given, he said that from dust you were brought forth, from dust you will return. And so all of us, death entered into the world. Unless Christ returned, death is something all of us have to go through. But the key word there is through. Because the tomb is now open. And the tomb has an open door. Meaning, just as easily as we enter in, we also might exit. But the tomb wasn't always open, was it? There was a time period there, at least for three days, where the the tomb was closed. And so that brings me to my third section there, this idea of something being guarded. So for the sake of this time and talking about the tomb, we're going to move forward to this point. It may seem silly for the Pharisees to come to Pilate and ask for the tomb to be guarded. I mean, think about this. This is a stone-cut tomb. It's not just a regular cave. A regular cave might have another end to it, right? That's why when you go through, like, West Virginia, you don't just go into any kind of cave. There might be a black bear on the other side of it, right? But this cave was cut out of the rock. It says that it was hewn out, depending on the kind of scripture that you have. But, but the idea of this was basically this. It was this boring into the side of this mountain, stone-cut masonry. And then they would have a little door where you could kind of bend over to enter in, uh, enough for two people to single file, carry a body in. And they would walk into this tomb, and then it was hewn out, and there was usually uh, kind of, if you think about bunk beds, basically, where they would they'd place these bodies into there. And, and, and you've seen TV shows and things like this where this kind of makes sense to you, I'm sure. And then what they would do is they would have this huge boulder, this huge stone that was cut for this purpose. And generally, like a mason, what they would do is they would have it set up so that it would roll downhill so it would be much easier to shut than it would to open. Now, this stone itself was on guard. Firstly, it was on guard for the deceased. I mean, grave robbers were a thing. And so people would set the stone as a guard to make sure that their loved one was not defiled in the grave that nobody would come in there and take any jewels or any kind of other things or do anything with the bodies that would be uh, not good while they were in there. So that's the first thing that it was doing, guarding. The second thing was uh, these bodies, if they were left out, let's just be honest, they would be assaulted by these carnivorous animals, these scavenger animals that would be roaming the countryside. And so this tomb set as a guard was to guard those who were within, but not just those who were within, but also those who were without. Again, I'm sorry to be morbid with you, but there was a stench and an odor that would happen. Was that not exactly the claim of Lazarus' sisters upon Jesus arriving? Lord, we can't remove the, the stone from the tomb now. There is going to be an odor. And so as this is set in a garden where people would come, then obviously this tomb needs to be set on guard, and the stone would do that firstly and foremostly. And so I hope that you understand that the stone was there to guard both those who were in and out. That is the good thing of being on guard. Beloved, let us have a guard also set on a rock, not just any rock, but on the cornerstone that the builders rejected and has now become that stone. For there is doctrine and there is beliefs 
one of which is the true death, true humanity, true deity of Christ that is under attack. Let us allow this rock of doctrine to guard that so that it does not get robbed or defiled or become a stench to any of us. But there's another class of people in this story. There's another guard that was set. The second guard that was set is not one to guard the things of God, but rather it's to guard against the things of God. And this very thing that they did to try to assure that the resurrection would not take place makes it absolutely unequivocally, without a doubt, that Jesus did actually rise from the dead. Because think of the scenario here. They have this cut tomb. They know whose tomb it is, so it's not like they went to the wrong burial plot. It's Joseph's tomb. How do they know that? Pilate asked for it, and he's a member of the council. There was also eyewitnesses to where Jesus was buried. Mary and Martha and these other, these other ladies that were there. Uh, these two men, Nicodemus and Joseph. And also, obviously, the scribes and the Pharisees know which tomb it was in because they, will, they go to Pilate, who also knows which tomb it was, and they ask to set a guard. So it's a stone-hewn plot, which has then been sealed. And a lot of times they'll do this with wax or rope or some other thing that they would, they would put over. Um, when, when I was a kid, I th- yeah, all of our, I don't know, m- maybe Rowan's back there. I don't want to give away this dad secret. All right, dads. Clear scotch tape. You can stick it in such a way so that when your son gets into stuff that you don't want him to, that then the tape is marked off, and so you can tell that somebody was in there that shouldn't have been in there. They sealed this tomb. By the way, Rowan, I don't do that, just so you know. (laughs) Anyway, uh, they seal this tomb. And the very thing that they saw to make sure that they were keeping from happening is the very thing that now is inarguable. Because now they have centurion soldiers, or at very least, temple soldiers who were there the entire three days. And then have to give testimony that a being of all light came down in an earthquake and rolled the tomb away as we fell on our faces as if dead. So the theory of body snatchers, the theory of a Jesus who swooned and was was beaten and bruised and stabbed and crucified and then passed out could somehow open a tomb from the inside. You see, there is more than just faith. There is logic in our belief system. So I want to ask you this morning, where's your guard? I mean, are you believing 100% wholeheartedly or are you also holding in the other hand, well, you know, I'm not sure if I can really do this. I ought to set a guard just in case. If that's you this morning, I just want to beg to you, please don't set a guard where there ought not need be a guard. Let his word be found true and every one of us a liar. If Jesus existed, and we know that he did, then he died, because all men do. If he was truly man, and if he died, and if he was buried, which not only does Josephus and other historians have that this was a real case, but also then he was resurrected. So I want to ask you this morning, where is your guard? Why have you posted him? 
What is the sepulcher of your heart that you have a seal upon it and you are seeking in your imagination to guard both those outside as well as those inside? Because as we already looked here, Jesus died for you. That's his gift. And all he asks for is that you would then come to him. He doesn't ask that you would give him any more than what he is due, which, by the way, is everything. But instead, all he wants from you is a relationship with you and for you not to be on guard with him. And so for sake of time, then, as we move on to the last and final part, I want to point this to you. This tomb was located in a garden. I don't know about you, I find that a strange place for a tomb. Only when I don't understand the bigger picture of Scripture. Because if I understand the bigger picture of Scripture, and I hope that you do too, I think the garden is a perfect place for the tomb. Because was it not in the garden that the curse was born? And so therefore it makes sense that it's in the garden that the curse is put to death. And so in this tomb, in this garden, Two things went into the grave, death and Jesus. And only one came out, Jesus. And so this tomb is where death went to die. And along with it, any of our fears, any of our anxieties, any of our worries and our sadness, any of our grief and our failure, all of those things. Do you know the other thing a garden represents all throughout history? A place of life, a place of growth, a place of peace, a place of rest. So I think it is absolutely perfect and fitting that Jesus' tomb would be situated in a garden. Since that's where it all started, it makes sense that this is where it would be completed. And therefore, this is where you and I are called one day, either through this glorious open door of the tomb, or through Christ returning for us. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for the encouragement of your death. We thank you for this tomb. In a world out there, it seems absolutely ludicrous to take pride in, to worship in, to glory in a tomb. And yet we have seen so clearly in your text this morning that it is in this very tomb that worked as a womb to birth forth life for all of us who would believe in Christ Jesus. So it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.